Imagine being killed for simply living your truth. A talented footballer and a successful woman who captured the hearts of everyone who knew her. More than just an athlete or an activist though, she was a beacon of hope for the LGBTQI community in South Africa. A community constantly facing discrimination and violence. Her brutal murder would shock the country and sparked an outcry for justice. This is the disturbing case of UD Similar. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. As I mentioned in my last episode, this month, to celebrate Pride Month, I'm amplifying the voices and narratives of victims belonging to the LGBTQI community. Into it. Yudi Inoculet Similani was born on the 11th of March 1977 to Mali and Kotso Similani. Her mother had chosen both her name and middle name after reading a book where the female character was strong-willed, inspiring, and persevering, and just so happened to be named Yudi. Another character that she admired within the book was also named Inoculate, and so the decision was made. Yudi would live and grow up in Kwatema with her older brother, Bafana, her parents, and her grandmother, Gogo. Kwatema is a township that was created in 1951, southwest of Springs on the East Rand in Gauteng. The township was established by the apartheid government when African individuals were forcibly removed from Payenville due to the fact that the location was too close to a white town. Unfortunately, the social development of the township never really emerged, with basic service delivery still sometimes not occurring even to this day. As a child growing up, Yudi first found her interest and love of football when she was only four years old. She would demand that her brother, whom she called Bafo, take her to practice with him, even though football was definitely not a sport at the time that was being played by women, let alone girls. But Yudi would not take no for an answer. She would later tell her Gogo, and I quote, My soul is liberated when I play. It makes me happy. End quote. She indeed lived up to her name, and she was an incredibly determined child, with her mother knowing from an early age that her daughter was special. Compared to other young girls, though, Yudi never played with dolls or even wore dresses. I mean, her school even called her mother one day, complaining that Yudi did not want to wear the girls' school uniform, and they were confused as to whether she was a girl or a boy. And even though religion was a vital component of their lives, her parents did not hold any prejudice against any particular community. Yudi always had their full support. After that incident, her mother had told her, and I quote, As long as you respect other people, go to school and behave yourself, you can dress however you like. End quote. And Yudi, with that support and love, was able to thrive and express her truth. At the age of 12, she would disclose her sexuality to her mother and ask if she would still love her. To which her mother had responded, Of course I still love you. And soon, the whole country would love her too. She would also go on to be one of the first openly lesbian, well-known women in South Africa. 
As days turned into months, her dedication led to her skills improving and her passions growing. This meant early wake-ups before sunrise to be at the gym to ensure she would be honing her skills and increasing her fitness level. Before long, she would join her local female soccer team, Quatema Ladies. She would start off as a goalkeeper, but later she would be nicknamed Styles due to her being a left-footed midfielder. And soon she would be invited to play for the South African female soccer team, Banyana Banyana, which literally means the girls. As she grew in not only her skill but also popularity, she began to use her platform to further educate others about the LGBTQI community, aiding to create positive dialogue and lower the spread of misinformation. Her career soared as the teams she was in would win many tournaments and she began to be known on a global scale. And as the days led up to what would ultimately be her tragic demise, Yudi was at the peak of her life, enjoying every moment. She was also studying to become a referee with the goal of being part of the 2010 World Cup, which was set to be held in South Africa. She had also just turned 31 and had a brand new job lined up for her at a law firm in Pretoria where she would be earning a steady monthly salary. This was a massive deal to her as prior to this she had been doing unpaid voluntary work, part-time work as a football coach and referee and of course working with her first love football. But now she welcomed a new start, an opportunity for her to support those she loved the most, her family. And they were so proud of her. Her mother had even visited the offices where she was going to be working. And gaining permanent employment was not only a big deal in her life, but also in the lives of those within her community. The reason being was that an openly lesbian black woman being able to find permanent employment and being accepted by her employers was not common in the least. Yudi, of course, had shared her excitement with her very close friend Belise, and together herself and her friend group had decided to go out to celebrate her achievement. And so the evening of April 2008 dawned. The evening had progressed like any evening out with friends might, with Yudi and her friends going to a local tavern to spend the evening and hang out, celebrating Yudi's new job and success. They would leave the tavern in Quatema at around 1.30am. On the walk home, which wasn't an incredibly long walk either, Yudi began to feel uneasy. When she looked around her, there were a group of men watching her, who began to walk in her direction. Two of the men reached Yudi and her friends first, demanding their belongings. Her friends had then scattered. Although she was fit, she was tall, and she knew how to protect herself, she was outnumbered. And she was pretty sure she recognized one of the men. These four men had then proceeded to attack her, stab her, and drag her to a nearby ditch. And there, in the darkness of the night, she would be gang-raped. Yudi had screamed as her jeans, her leather coat, and her boots were ripped from her. And even though there were homes in the surrounding areas and occupants who heard her cries, no one came to help nor assist. Left naked to succumb to her wounds, her phone, watch, and even soccer trainers were stolen. And so, lying in a ditch in the middle of a field near a stream, Yudi's body would be discovered the next day. That very morning, her brother would receive a call from the neighbors, asking him to come and see them. He wasn't home at that moment, but he got in a taxi and he made the journey back. On the way, the taxi had passed an open field where a large group of individuals were gathered. 
He had wondered for a brief moment what the commotion was about, not knowing that it was his sister's body that was lying there. He was then told by the neighbor to go to the police station where his mother was waiting. What had happened that morning was that the police had come to her door, but she had been out. They had then left a message with her neighbors who had gotten hold of her and then brought her to the police station. Although she was not a fan of police stations in the least, the neighbors had told her that Bafana was in trouble and thus she had made her way inside. There, the heartbreaking news would be told to her and she would pass it on to Bafana when he arrived. The family were distraught. Her mother was inconsolable. At the scene of the murder, Mali could not bring herself to see her daughter in that way. Bafana, on the other hand, although overcome with emotion, began to scoop the blood on the ground with his hands and consume it. As he did, he told the people surrounding him that those who committed the crime would be found. One by one, but they would be found. And as he swallowed the blood, he said, and I quote, This is my blood. I will not leave it here. I'm taking it with me, inside of me. End quote. Forensic reports would later showcase that amongst multiple stab wounds to her body, there was also bruising in her genital region, a sign of the sexual assault she had endured. She had been stabbed over 20 times, and she even had cuts on the soles of her feet. Although just two days after the body was discovered, five men were taken into custody, it would only be towards the end of May that these men, between the ages of 18 and 24 years old, would appear in court. The court case was postponed due to conflicting stories of the accused, which the court ruled made it impossible for them to be represented by the same lawyer. One of the men, Tepo Pizza, Yudi's neighbor, would later state that although he had been drinking with her that day, he was not present for her murder. He would explain that he was walking home with Yudi that evening when two of the four accused approached them. He was then robbed and allegedly chased away with the knife. He went on to state that he had ran from the scene before the murder. The charges against him would later be withdrawn due to lack of evidence. The trial then proceeded for the remaining four men who would face charges of murder with aggravating circumstances, two charges of robbery with aggravating circumstances, and rape. After multiple postponements, the trial would begin in February of 2009. The accused, Kumbalani Magagula, Johannes Machnangu, and Temba Nvubu were finally named as they pleaded not guilty to all of the charges laid before them. And what about the fourth man, you may ask? Well, he actually confessed to the crime and pleaded guilty. He also had a prior conviction of theft and assault. With an air of complete calm that unnerved many, 24-year-old Tato Petrus Mpiti recounted his version of events regarding the murder. He stated how himself and the other accused had bumped into Yudi and attempted to rob her. However, she had then apparently recognized Temba and it was at this point that the men had decided to kill her as they did not want to be arrested. When asked why he pled guilty, he would state, and I quote, I felt bad and ashamed about what I did. I want to take responsibility for my actions, end quote. Tato would later be sentenced to 32 years in prison. The judge in the case had stated, Yudi Similani suffered a brutal, undignified death. She was stripped naked, stabbed, assaulted, and raped. What more indignity can a person endure? In the early trial days, however, the other killers claims that they had not recognized Yudi and that it was not a hate crime. The judge in the first case had also accepted the story of robbery without hesitation. 
he not only failed to understand the importance of her sexuality being mentioned in relation to the crime, but dismissed it altogether. A second trial for the remaining three accused then concluded in September. Temba Mvubu, who was 24 years old, was sentenced to life for the murder, 20 years for being an accomplice to rape, and 15 years for robbery. The judge would make the comment that he had shown no remorse, and maintained that he was not to blame for Yudi's death. Temba would stare at the floor with his hands behind his back, and when asked by reporters for a statement, he had muttered, I'm not sorry, as he was led from the dark. The other two men, Kumbalani Magagula, 22 years old, and Johannes Machlangu, 18 years old, were acquitted of their alleged part in the attack. The judge had said, and I quote, God will be their judge, end quote. And so the case was concluded. After Yudi's murder made international news, it sparked major debates regarding violence against the LGBTQI community. The convictions and sentences of the accused also rallied multiple LGBTQI South African organizations, who helped to further highlight many aspects of the case and of course the victim throughout the trial. Yudi's murder case was unique in the respect that it was the first time that a rape and murder of a lesbian woman had been judged as a hate crime. And of course, that an arrest, prosecution and conviction was achieved, as many similar murders often fell on the wayside, treated as unimportant by the police or justice system. A year before Yudi's death, Cesar Kele Sigasa, a women's and gay rights activist, and her friend Salomi Masua were heckled outside a bar and called tomboys. The women were then gang-raped, tortured, tied up with their underwear and shot in the head. No one was ever convicted. The two men who were convicted in her murder case were also the first two men in South Africa to be convicted on corrective rape charges. Despite the existence of over 30 reported cases in the 10 years preceding the murder. So for those of you who are not aware of the concept of corrective rape, let me explain. The concept as it relates in this case is backed by the notion that raping a lesbian woman will cure her of her non-conforming sexuality. A lesbian woman who was later interviewed for a documentary and news piece would state, and I quote, We get insults every day, beatings if we walk alone. You are constantly reminded that you deserve to be raped. They yell, if I you then you will go straight you will buy skirts and start to cook because you will have learned how to be a real woman end quote yudi's best friend would later state that the local men feel as they the lesbian women provoke them and they claim these women are also trying to take their girls from them this established and disturbingly homophobic practice has been existing predominantly within black townships around south africa for years but where did it begin and why does it prevail? The roots of corrective rape can be traced back to deeply ingrained societal prejudices and biases against individuals who do not conform to traditional gender and sexual norms. Corrective rape is thus an extreme manifestation of this discrimination as the intent is to right the wrongs. Thus, the perpetrators believe that they are not only well within their rights to enact this action, but 
also often hold strong beliefs that are rooted in homophobia, transphobia, and misogyny. These acts are therefore seen to be a form of punishment or retribution for the victim's perceived deviation from societal norms. Ultimately, the roots lie in a complex web of cultural, social, and psychological factors. Within South African culture in particular, homosexuality is seen as being unchristian, un-African, and to many an insult to culture and traditional values. For this reason in societies, individuals identifying as being part of the LGBTQIA community are often stigmatized, discriminated against, and subjected to violence and harassment. These individuals are seen as immoral or unnatural. This worldview exists within many environments, from schools and homes, to workplaces, health, religious institutions, and of course, the judicial system. In a country where as a woman you have a higher chance of being raped than finding a job, where a girl born today is more likely to be assaulted than she is to learn how to read, and where violence against women is commonplace, queer women face an even larger risk. Although all women in South Africa are vulnerable to violence, particularly gender-based violence, there is a correlation between increased poverty and increased vulnerability. Many people people of color, as a result of historical segregation, find themselves in situations where they have a far more limited access to resources. This heightens the risk of attack, which is only magnified within cultures that are deeply homophobic and in which sexual violence is seen as a weapon. Within many areas where the practice of corrective rape is rife, poverty, crammed settlements, unemployed and disenfranchised men, and substance abuse is commonplace. Within the minds of men who have grown up with a deeply ingrained patriarchal viewpoint, lesbianism is seen as a threat to male dominance and power. As I've illustrated, this issue is deeply rooted in multiple sectors of society and thus requires a multifaceted approach. This means bold leadership, acceptance and tolerance, as well as concerted efforts in order to bring about large-scale transformative change. And of course, it needs to come from the top. I mean, we're in a country where in 2006, the soon-to-be president, Jacob Zuma, who, mind you, would later go on trial for rape charges, had the cheek to condemn gay marriage, stating that it was, and I quote, a disgrace to the nation, end quote. And those words were coming from a man who represented a country who has been at the forefront of same-sex rights, becoming the first African country to decriminalize same-sex acts in 1998, as well as the fifth in the world to legalize same-sex marriage in 2006. But unfortunately, our constitution, although existing, means absolutely nothing to those who wish to continue enacting harm upon others. A quarter of men interviewed in a study conducted by the Medical Research Council in the Eastern Cape would state that they had raped at least once, with three quarters of them admitting that their victim was under 20 years old, and one-tenth of them stating that the victim was under 10 years old. A quarter of schoolboys in Soweto had even given the act of gang rape a local term, jack rolling, and they described the act as fun, even taking pictures and videos during it. 
South Africa has shocking GBV statistics. I don't even need to tell you again because it's everywhere you look. And the danger only intensifies for black females within the LGBTQI community. They wear both hats, considered not only as black women, but as women whose sexuality sits outside of the norms. According to data released in 2017, 49% of black members of LGBTQI plus communities in the country are likely to know someone who has been murdered for being part of the community, compared to 26% of white community members. What I'm getting at is that not everyone needs to believe the same thing or see the world in the same way, but rather educate themselves before turning to violence. You may not believe in the way another person lives their life and expresses their truth and that's fine. You do you boo. But you need to practice understanding and tolerance. Your rights to freedom of speech and having your own beliefs cannot supersede another person's rights to dignity, respect and of course safety. And that's why those who loved and admired Yudi, especially her mother and family, after her passing, worked with the University of KwaZulu-Natal to create safe spaces to facilitate dialogue between religious leaders and the LGBTQI community. This interaction ultimately culminated in what is now known as as the Yudi Similani Memorial Lecture. Started in 2016 and now given annually, the lecture aids to facilitate the process of change within religious society and organizations, to allow the possibility of acceptance by such groups of individuals belonging to the LGBTQI community. Yudi's legacy lives on to this day, not only through the stories that are told of her, but through collections of her items that are held by the Gay and Lesbian Archives. Their UD Similani collection comprises of her soccer boots, five medals, as well as a whistle. All of these items were donated to the collection by her family. A bridge was also built over the stream in Kwatema next to the football field where Similani's body was found. The bridge features her face imprinted on it and was built, and I quote, as a reminder of freedom, dignity, and equality for all, end quote, according to the Lesbian and Gay Equality Project. Yudi's mother was instrumental in the fight to change the views that her community and those around her held on homosexuality. She would say, and I quote, I want to tell the other mothers that these are my children. They are not creatures, they are human beings. They are our children of South Africa today. End quote. Coming from a Methodist faith, she used that to connect with others, local pastors, churches, and congregations. She remained committed to fighting prejudice in all forms, right up until her death in 2019. Yudi was a brave, kind, inspiring, and talented soul, and her loss is felt even to this day. Although her life was taken too soon, she inspired countless others with her bravery, perseverance, and unwavering commitment to equality for all. She lived her truth fiercely and proudly. Today, we can honor her memory by continuing to fight against hate and intolerance in all forms. Let Yudi and her story serve as a reminder that the only path to a better world is together, united. Until next episode, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed, stay proud, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!